Good morning. <clears throat> well, before we get before we get started here, I just want to say, and I said this first service too, but uh, I was scheduled for sound this morning, and last minute, Mitch was willing to to trade me, um, which I greatly appreciate. Um, I just want to say, I think oftentimes the sound crew gets neglected here because they're typically the first ones to show up, and they're typically leaving when the lights are off and people forgot they were up there. Um, so if we can just give the sound team, and I know Mitch is the only one up there now, but there's, we got Josiah behind the camera. Um, Dan Kelly's done a lot of rework as they've remodeled this building just to, to run cables. If we can just give those guys a round of applause. And Chris, I, I, I just think that we got an amazing worship team, and I don't know who let Chris decide that he could go somewhere else. Um, it was a God thing, obviously, yeah, but we will... We will miss your thoughtfulness in song choice, sir. Um, and I, I hope um, the gentleman that God's bringing us will, will continue that. And just, uh, yeah, just grateful for just the songs we sang this morning. Um, as you, hopefully as you're hearing the scripture read, you could just feel um, just how those, those songs is tied in with the text just in a great way. Um, all right, so uh, just thankful for those guys. So I have, a, uh, I have an office plant, or I had an office plant that was in my office, and I got that plant when I first started the job. And when I started there, um, they gave it to me on my first day of work, and I, I've just been watering it ever since. So it's been about two, over two years of just watering this plant faithfully. Some of these vines are like almost eight feet long that are coming out of this tiny plant. And so I had them like going up and down like the blinds of my, my office window, and and I, I have a coffee pot in my office, and I would typically, you know, I would, I would, if there were coffee grounds left over, I would pour them into the plant. Well, what happened is um, somehow those coffee grounds, when they were in my plant, became moldy, and it started to kind of blossom this blue cheese type of fungus in my plant. And so... Um, so I've been working to recover my plant, but, but that's, not, that's not what God has for us. That's not what God intends for us, right? I don't want the life that God gave me to be a festering mess, right? I want the life that God gave me to honor him, as I'm sure everyone in this room does as well. I titled this message, Healthy Because of Grace. It's all about healthiness that comes from grace. Paul desired Titus, um, to, to live and build a church that was healthy. So as we, we navigate, I just want to give a warning as we work our way through this text. It's weighty, right? And, and I think we all will feel the weight of this text, and we should feel the weight of this text. But I do want you to know there is a pressure relief valve, right? And verse 11 is where we talk about the salvation of God. And there is that pressure relief valve that we that we'll hopefully experience that will give us the grace to walk out of here in love. Um, I've been blessed we, as the PLI guys who have um, the Pastor Leadership Institute guys who have basically been learning from uh, a bunch of the sister churches, from Dan Hardy, from the elders here. And, and we've been blessed, hopefully, as you have two weeks ago when David um, presented the first chapter of Titus of just really helping us understand that this book was written for the faith of God's elect. This is teaching us how we ought to live. And then I was really 
just super encouraged. I love Mike. I love his personality. I love his humbleness. Hopefully, you guys got to get a taste of that. Um, we've been able to, to just walk through life with him a little more over the past couple years. But he taught us that the necessity to have godly elders. Um, and he also taught us to be aware of bad teaching that needs rebuke. He, he gave us a warning against bad teachers that create bad living. And today we're going to do the opposite of that. We're going to learn about the opposite of that because in Titus 2.1 it says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So there is a but. So in contrast to bad teaching, we are going to have good teaching. And good teaching begets good living. So Paul commanded Titus to teach. So teaching is not an option. It should weave into the very fabric of our DNA. The gospel should transform every aspect of our lives. Teaching should be consumed with the God that we know, right? The God who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. The God who made man in his very own image. The God who created a rescue plan to save us after the fall, before we fell. The God who shows grace upon grace. The God who sent his very own son to die on a cross, brutally crucified for no justifiable reason. The God who paid our penalty the God who rose from the dead, and a God that is coming back. The God who will remove evil, and the God whose goodness knows no end. Right? So godly teaching, it promotes purity. It changes people. Healthy teaching enables people who are dead in their sins to be alive in Christ. Without healthy teaching, we will not be the people that we should be. If our lives are trending downwards, often, as Mike illustrated, it's a result of poor teaching, sickly teaching, teaching that introduces fungus like my plant, teaching that tickles ears, teaching that doesn't change our lives but coddles it. We must teach what is sound. We must teach what is healthy, right? It would be like if, we, if all we did was eat at McDonald's for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and dessert, and we expected to be healthy, right? We know that's not good for us. In the same way, we should crave, right? Like, like babies crave pure milk. We should crave God's word. So are we teaching what is healthy? I, I hope, like you, I've experienced healthy teaching here. I've experienced a lot of good teaching from God's word that's, that's faithfully walked through God's passages, God's books of God's word in a way that has been healthy. It's helped me think different. It's helped me love better. But does that a teaching, hopefully that teaching extends beyond these doors. Hopefully it ex you experience healthy teaching in your household, in the sphere of influence with the conversations you have. Is teaching, is there good teaching flowing from your life? So in verse 2, Paul continues, and he gives us the healthy characteristics of God's people. So we're going to start with older men. So this is unlike Mike, as he discussed last week when he talked about elders. Older men is not as much concerned about age. In other words, like if you are helping out a college person or a younger man is helping out in with Stephen in the youth ministry, 
and he is helping with middle schoolers or high schoolers, that college student would fall under what is defined here as older man. That college student should meet these qualifications. And most of these, all of these, apply to all of us. So there are four things that an older man is implored, is encouraged to be. And it's sober-minded, dignified, self-control, and sound. So sober-minded. This is important. This is the opposite of being a drunkard in the head. This is being level-headed, making wise decisions. Someone whose mind is saturated with the word of God. Not consumed with worldly wisdom or useless information that is so easy to come by, but a mind that thinks about the things of God. A mind that contemplates scripture. A mind that is filled with righteous thoughts. A mind that doesn't think highly of oneself. And a mind that walks in communion with God. From a worldly perspective, when people are not sober, when they are drunk, they do not look after themselves, and they do not make wise decisions. But more importantly, they don't care for others. They are not aware of others' needs, and they are not concerned with what may happen to others. A mind plagued and constantly focused on sexual thoughts, selfishness, what we're going to buy next, what we're going to eat, is, is selfish. And if we're selfish, then we're not aware of the fact that our enemy, Satan, is deceiving others and destroying others. And we are not giving a thought to it. We must be sober-minded. Dignified. This is a term of nobility. It evokes respect. doesn't mean you're going to be respected, but it means that you live a life that's respectable. We represent the king, we are children of the king who is over all kings. Just think about that, right? Like, we have a God who owns everything, right? We should listen well. We should be absolutely blameless. If every conversation, if every interaction was posted live on YouTube, would it be a joy to watch? Self-control. This is a word that in essence means thoughtful. Right? Are we thoughtful? So Paul in 1 Corinthians states, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, but be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Um, I don't know how much thinking or knowledge a baby who's not even been weaned from the breast does, but I'm assuming it's probably zero. Right? Like It should be essentially no evil. Right? We shouldn't have any evil thoughts. We should be infants in our understanding of evil. We should take every thought captive. So a man who can take every thought captive will be self-controlled. That is the text. The actions start with the thoughts. If you can take every thought captive, you will be self-controlled. I, um, about five years ago, before I, I, I get the timeline messed up, but I do know, um, I, I did not even really understand what taking thoughts captive was. I didn't really even think thoughts were a big deal. Um, about five years ago-ish, um, just, just let my thoughts um, entertain darkness um, to the point that it led to suicidal thinking. It led me to a gun store to buy a gun. 
and somehow by the grace of God, I was stopped. But I look and I, and I just think back now, if I would have taken those thoughts captive, if I would have thought about the things of God, I wouldn't have gotten that far down the path. Our thoughts' lives matter. They matter deeply. And I think I'm so grateful for, for just men at this church and for Pastor Pat who helped me understand and helped me think through biblically um, just to, to reshape my mind in a different way. So Paul pleads older men, the last attribute on here is to be sound. So healthy and sound are the same thing. So if you're reading through, um, sound means healthy. So if I say healthy, I'm referring to sound. If I say sound, I'm saying healthy. Um, healthy is probably what we typically... <laughs> that's right. Um, it's, a, it's an active and continual process of healthiness. right? So we are supposed to be continually becoming more and more healthy, and there are three things that determine our health in the passage, and you'll see them. It's faith, it's love, and it's steadfastness, and this ties into, right, so the first word faith, this ties in back to the, how Paul started this chapter, right? This is for, this book was written for the sake of the faith of God's elect, so if you don't have faith, you will not be healthy, and if you don't have faith, you'll be weighed down by things that don't matter, and you'll be, you'll be stressed, you'll be stressed out. Likewise, if you don't have love, unconditional love, then your life will be miserable. You'll be consumed with yourself. If you don't endure, if you are not steadfast, then your life will be meaningless. Healthy people in the church have faith, they show love and are steadfast. Older men, it starts with you. The purity of the church begins with older men. You must be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, and sound. You must grow in your faith and love and endurance. The trajectory of your life must be upwards, as Dan often reminds us. Older men, how are you living? How are you living? Paul transitions to describing the characteristics necessary in older women. Although it's a slight transition because it says likewise, so pretty much the same thing as the men, just a slightly different emphasis. The older women in, um, have four characteristics, like the men. They are supposed to be reverent, not slanderers, not enslaved, and they are to teach. So reverent, this parallels the focus that was put on men to be dignified. But in this case, Paul is a little more concerned about their behavior. They are to be priestly, representative of God's holiness, his splendor, his majesty, like Esther, who God used to save his people from destruction, right? And is associated with the deliverance of her people, of God's people. Women who have the ear of the king, and can intercede for his people. These women are a blessing to the church. Not slanderers. This is when we speak in a way that is not helpful. It's not encouraging, and it's usually done when someone's not around. And the task of controlling one's tongue is difficult. As James illuminates, as we reviewed when we did the Faith at Work series, is that the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We can slowly kill others with our words. 
but women who speak the words of God are a great blessing. Not enslaved. Women are to be free. They're not to be entangled in sin or selfishness and addictions. Here Paul calls out specifically that they should be free from the addiction of wine, but any addiction applies. These should be women who have room in their lives. They've created room in their lives to pour into others and to glorify God. They're to teach what is good. This doesn't mean that they will be in the position or role of a teacher, but it means that they will share the instruction, share and instruct others in what is good. That they will teach others what is expected. They'll look for a way to encourage others. So women, older women, be aware. Keep in mind every conversation, every day. How can you teach others to do good? How can you share the good news that Jesus rose from the dead? How can you live a life that teaches and looks for opportunities to teach those who might not know God's word as well as they should? In verse 4, Paul desires the older women to train the younger. The word train had the idea of bringing to one's senses. So older women bring the younger to their senses. Training is different than teaching. Sure, teaching occurs in training, but training is the act of getting in the weeds. It understands where one is, and it understands where one needs to go. Training goes at the pace of the trainee rather than the trainer. Paul's goal is that the older women would teach the younger how to love their husbands and their children. And I, and I, what's cool is like this is not something that um, is entrusted to the older men. It's not something entrusted to the elders. It's not something that's um, entrust, entrusted to Titus. This task of training the younger women is entrusted to the older women, right? I, I would not be able to do that task well, right? But I am... I'm grateful for the older women who are able to speak into younger women's lives, right? I'm grateful for this place that has a lot of faithful older women who have taught and discipled my wife here over the past few years. And my kids may not know it, but they experience it, right? And when they get to be older, I hope they understand the blessing of having a mom who's been discipled by older women. So, older women, how are you living? As we transition to the younger women, in addition to loving their husbands and their children, five things Paul would love to see emulated, to see and be shown in their lives, and these are self-control, purity, working from home, kind, and submissive. So self-controlled, this is like the older men. This is the same word. It means to be thoughtful, a thoughtfulness that leads to obedience. They're to be pure. This often is associated with divinity. It's an attribute of divinity. It describes what is free from any contamination. The connotation is often the word chaste, a sexual purity, like a virgin clothed on white on her wedding day. Here Paul uses pure as an all-encompassing innocence to sin and evil. So working at home, 
This can also be translated as carrying out household duties. These are the things that get no respect, the things that culture degrades as beneath them, the things that if we could, things that if we could not do them, we, we probably wouldn't, such as cleaning, cooking, caring for kids, possibly the bills, the finances, anything around the house that needs to be done. And as we, as we wrestle through what this word means today, I want it to be noted that, this, that men are responsible to make sure that women are loved in this, not neglected, not abused, right? As Titus 2.2 um, 2 says, right, our soundness, our health is to be characterized by love. We should be husbands who love our wives well and support them in this. This is not a free ride. Our wives have to do this, not us. I used to, uh, I used to work in an, in an office building that crammed us in like sardines. Now that I look back, there's like six of us in this tiny, in this tiny office box that if I was in a cubicle, I would have had more space. Um, but we were in this tiny room, and I was the only guy, and the rest were older women. Um, and, and there was a bitterness from all of them. And they would all admit that the only reason that they were there was because their husbands wanted more money. And that's heartbreaking. And, and I, um, I thought that didn't apply to me. I thought I was not that guy. I thought I was better, like, they don't understand. But then as I, as I took a look um, I realized I was the same. Uh, my wife was working three nights a week. She worked the night shift, and it was usually anywhere from 13 to 14 hours. She'd work three days a week. Oftentimes, she'd pick up an additional shift for overtime because the money was too hard to pass up for my flesh. And she would not sleep well. Sometimes she would just get a few hours of sleep. And my mind was screwed up. And, and I share that um, because I know it's easy. It's easy to get caught up in the money. And I have an amazing wife. I've got a wife that I'm super blessed to have, but we should not abuse our wives to make more money, and we also should not go the opposite extreme to have our wives pick up for our laziness. Now, I do want to say this. It's, it's noted that a woman's responsibility should include household duties, but they're not limited to this. Proverbs 31 makes it clear. This woman, a woman uplifted and exalted by God, rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. So women can make money, and they can take care of the household. They are more talented than I am. Paul is primarily concerned, though, with the women being busy at home. This is in contrast to being idle or lazy. But it also puts the emphasis on the home. The world emphasizes two incomes, what you can get, what you can do with two incomes. We should exalt and praise the women who fear the Lord. The next term on here is kind. Other translations translate this as good. This is the selfish acts that come from a good heart transformed by the grace of Jesus. 
It's not manufactured, but by faith, women can walk in the words that God has prepared, walk in the works that God has prepared beforehand. Right? We don't always know. I was wrestling through trying to figure out, like, what is the good? What are the good that the women are supposed to be doing? What does that mean? And I think, and older women probably already know this, but God has the good works prepared in advance. And by faith, we walk in the good works that God has prepared. So we don't know what the good will be, but we do know that God has prepared it. Submissive to their husbands. This is a hard concept, because in our culture, the connotation associated with submission is, is nasty. It's not a good one. Sometimes it seems like asking someone to submit is like asking somebody for their social security number. Even mentioning the topic of submission feels like that. Submission should require a high degree. Submission requires a high degree of trust. And no one wants to have someone else tell them what to do. But the thing is, is like the Bible doesn't have that connotation, right? The father sent the son, and the son didn't do it begrudgingly. He willingly and joyfully submitted to the father. Same with the Holy Spirit. Father, the son sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came and submitted joyfully and willingly to the son. And then you even have Jesus. He submits to his own parents willingly and joyfully. So there's not this connotation. In the, in the Bible, the connotation of submission is actually a good thing. And so I say this, women, if your husband asks you to do something, and it's not sinful, obviously, like, do it with joy. But I also say this, men, if your wife asks you to do something, do it with joy. And the reality is, Ephesians 5.21 says, we are supposed to submit to one another in the fear of God. That means everybody in this room, we should be serving and submitting to one another. The, the submission of process applies to all of us. And the thing is, is like when it's done, and I think we've experienced this, when people are servant-hearted and kind, it is a blessing to everybody. And that's what, um, that's what he's calling the younger women to do. And it ends, it talks about the word of God will be blasphemed, right? And so if, if the older women don't care about discipling younger women, they're not concerned with finding someone else to teach good, to pour into, to teach them to love their husband and their children, then those women are not going to care. They're not going to care about God's word, and they're not going to care about their husbands, and they're not going to care about their kids. And then God's word is blasphemed. So younger women... How are you living? Paul says to the young men, as we transition in verse 6, who have a one-track mind, Paul gives them one track of guardrails. Be self-controlled. So, young men, if you're here or you're listening, um, of all the lists, some of them where they have five to seven characteristics, they probably aren't going to remember all of them, and they'll say, look at Second Titus again. But I expect every young man in here to be able to remember one word, self-control. You can do it. No, you can't. It's easy. Now, doing, being self-controlled is a whole other thing. But again, this, this, is, this is like the older men. This is about the thoughts. I didn't realize this. I thought when I was, you know, if we could just avoid, if I could avoid the temptation or not go into the sin or not pursue the sin or do the sin, um, that that was that that was self-control. 
but self-control starts way before a sin occurs that others can see. It starts in the mind. It starts with our thoughts. So what do you think about? Men, are you, are, you, are you thinking about what is pure? Because if you are, you will control your hormones. If you capture your thoughts and you make them obedient to God, you will be pure. You will be self-controlled. You can think... You can thank God for singleness or you can beg and plead that God would bring you a faithful, godly wife. The task of self-control when you are a teenager or a young man, it seems impossible. I get that. I've been there. So find accountability. Find a place to confess sin. If you can't find one, start one. I had to, for a season of my life, I had to get rid of a, my smartphone. Just the dumb, I went with a dumb phone. The dumb phone was great. That was the smartest thing I ever made was to go with a dumb phone. Um, and and that's, that's a good option to fight sin. But if you don't want to do that, if you really, really just absolutely love your phone, um, which I get, they can be addicting, um, then there is the option of gouging out your eye. So if you'd rather go that route, I mean, it's, it's up to you, I guess, but, um, but we all struggle with it. We all struggle with our eyes, right? And there is a third option, young men. If you don't like the eye option, you can't just cut off your hand. So you can go that way too. Um, but it's serious. Like, it really is serious. If young men in the church could have self-controlled thoughts, the church would be a much healthier place. So young men, I want you to think about this for a minute. If you don't care about Jesus, you won't be self-controlled. If you do care about Jesus, you'll be self-controlled. You won't take Jesus who died and bought you and lives inside of you into the darkest, decaying, decrepit places on the planet that you think no one sees. I, I struggled with this because I just, as I, as I wrote it, I just felt the weight of, will we have younger men grow up to be godly older men? Older men, I, I charge you, care about the younger men. So I asked the young men, how are you living? How is your thought life? Are you being self-controlled? But Paul doesn't end with young men. He returns to Titus. So in verse 7, Paul continues to prod Titus. He says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. Right? So Titus was supposed to be a model of good works. He was supposed to be worthy of imitating in all respects, right? Not just one area, not just in one thing, but in everything, right? How we eat, how we work, how we live, how we speak. In everything, we should be a model for good works. Others should want to imitate us. Others should want to be like us as we follow Christ. Titus is also supposed to be a model of good teaching. So there's three characteristics of good teaching. This is integrity, dignity, and sound. So the first, integrity, means incorruptible, right? There shouldn't be any hint of sin or selfishness in our teaching, it should be absolutely pure with no ability, no ability to taint or distort what we teach. 
which is odd because I am very imperfect, and even as I wrote this or anytime I write an email, Microsoft likes to put a squiggly line underneath it. It's quick to point out my corruption. But God desires our teaching, God's word to be presented in a way that is flawless. And I, as I thought through this, I was struggling to like, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And I, I don't know if I have the perfect answer, but I think to start the thought process. And there's a few things that I think might help identify, is our teaching filled with integrity? And one is, look at your Facebook page. Would we find a life that's frustrated? Would it be consumed with what's going on politically? Would it vent? If, if we looked at your Facebook page, what would we see? Would we see God? Would we see God through you? Or would we just see you? The other thing is look at your bank account. Not just how much is in it, but what do you spend it on? Does it teach? Does it legitimately teach that Jesus is the greatest treasure? Right? I'm guilty. I, I'll be honest, like, I have a lot of stuff. And I joke because my kids were sitting over there this morning that we have a lot of hatchimals um, in our house. But more than just that, we have a lot of stuff. There's a lot of things um, that I've wasted money on that probably could have been spent on things more eternal. And so I think just wrestle through as we seek to have lives that are filled with integrity, how do we, how do we spend our money in a way that says that we truly believe Jesus is the greatest treasure? Another thing is look at your calendar. What do you spend your time on? Do you spend it enjoying God's word? How much time do you spend reading God's word? Is it an afterthought, a few minutes a day? Or do you legitimately enjoy just getting lost in God's word? How much time do you spend praying? Fervently praying, on your knees. When's the last time you were on your knees praying? How much of your calendar is filled with that? How much time do you spend discipling? How much time do you spend with other people pouring into them, right? How much time do you grab lunches or breakfasts or have people over to your house where you can disciple or pour into people or share the gospel? And then this is the big one. How much time do you actually spend resting where you actually just stop and be still and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord? Is God seen through us? So dignity. Paul wanted Titus's teaching to be full of dignity. So this is a manner, or mode, mode, a manner or mode of behavior that indicates one is above what is ordinary and therefore worthy of special respect. When we teach God's word, it should be fascinating, right? Like every time we teach it, people should just stand in awe of who our God is. We went to dinner a little while back with some coworkers, and I was just got the opportunity through conversation to share the gospel. And as we were doing so, she just looked at her husband, and she's like, isn't this like the most interesting thing you've ever heard? And it was just like, like she had never heard this before. And I was kind of like set back, but I'm like, that is, that is how our teaching should be. It should just create an awe in other people. So is God seen through us. So in verse 8, Paul continues, he lists sound speech. Um, I shared in the first service that Josh Trickstad, if you know him, he always talks about healthy things bear fruit. 
and he texted me after the first service to say that was not his quote, that it was maybe Jason Shelton, and he may have stole it from somebody else. And I told him, well, I've heard it the most from you. And so he said, well, I'm kind of like a parrot. So with that said, I love my brother Josh, and I appreciate just the encouragement that healthy things grow. Healthy things grow, and they bear good fruit, right? So healthy teaching heals. It really, it legitimately does. I know God's word for a fact heals disease thoughts in a way that medicine can't. Medicine can heal ailments, and in the same way that medicine can heal ailments, God's word heals sick and distorted and twisted thinking. Healthy teaching spurs others on to be healthy. So Paul qualifies sound teaching in that it cannot be condemned. There's no fault to be found in our teaching. I, uh, it's easy to find fault, and the world is full of fault. And I was watching a movie with my kids, and it had the rating of PG, which you would think PG is pretty safe. I mean, like, that seems safe to me. I see PG, and I'm like, that's the best rating you can get for a movie, I think. Um, but even that, in PG, it was rated PG, but it still contained mild and rude humor. And as I thought about that, as I was listening to it, I was like, as I saw it on the screen, I was like, our teaching should not even be PG. It should be more pure and not even contain mild or rude humor. So before we... I just ask, and, and you don't have to tell me good job for this sermon, um, but before we do tell someone good job, before we share on Facebook, before we post it on social media, think through, does it meet these three terms? Is that sermon filled with integrity? Does it have dignity? Is it sound? That should be the qualifications for whether or not we are teaching what is good. So is God seen through us. Paul helps us understand the necessity of good works and teaching that have integrity, dignity, and soundness. But it's not to help us think that we can earn our salvation by doing this. That's never the point of good works, ever, 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 ever. Um, good works never earn our salvation. But it's here to honor God, to teach his word in a way that draws people in rather than pushes them away. So there should be absolutely no evil talked about us, right? Like, if we are hated, let it be for what we are doing that is good. But let it not be that we would be hated for doing what is evil. So spur one another on. I love this church. I love the backpacks. I love the baby bottles. Fine for all the people that help out with that. Thank you but also like figure out ways to do more stuff like that. How can we as a body do more good? Is God seen through us? So in verse nine, we transition to bond servants. These are slaves. This is a touchy subject. And I don't have enough time. You could make, you could write a book on a biblical view of slavery. But I do want to just not gloss over this section of scripture. There are things that I think we can, we can learn. And so with that, just um, my hope is that we would just have a better understanding of what Paul's heart was for Titus. 
And I will say this, like, in slavery, just the fact that someone can be bought and sold like property makes my skin crawl, right? That's, that's not how God intended it to be. That is not what God desired to be, right? People were not supposed to be bought like machinery and treated like machinery, or sometimes much worse. Paul, in the letter to Philemon, desired for Onesimus, this was Philemon's former slave, to return to his former master. So Paul sent Onesimus back, and he was hoping that he would no longer be a bondservant, but much more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Right? So my hope is that blacks or those who are oppressed or those who are enslaved, since there's still slavery today, which is sickening, would be more and more our brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's five characteristics that Paul outlines for slaves. They are to be submissive, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, and showing all good faith. So submissive, like we discussed before, ultimately, it, ultimately it's submission to God. It's a submission to the God that aligns with submission to the slave owner. So a likewise, we will find a likewise in this passage for each group, for the older women, the younger women, the young men, likewise, slaves should be submissive. This is not just for the slaves. We must submit to God, and we must submit to those who God has placed in authority over us, unless that would cause us to sin, but that is often the exception and not the rule. We must be well-pleasing. Right? Slaves were to be well-pleasing. They were to bring enjoyment to their masters. I was not a master, but I did work as a manager at Chick-fil-A, and uh, I had the privilege to work with actually a lot of really cool kids who um, some of them loved Jesus, but I think a lot of them were just uh, just really kind-hearted, like, how do we help? How do we do this? What do you need? Is there anything I can do? And they're always just like going at 100 miles an hour, but in just kindness and grace. And, and those were the kind of people that was like, that's what we need to be, is we just need to be people who work hard that bring um, just joy to our masters, right? And so Master Sage, I don't know if you guys have met Master Sage here. Um, he, he goes often by the name of Pastor Pat, but he told me that we should be the very best employees, right? We should be the very best employees. We should be the hardest working, the most faithful, joyful workers our bosses have ever known. And then slaves were told not to be argumentative. And as I was thinking about this over the past couple of days, I, I just had this thought that maybe a really good test of our pride is how often do we argue? Slaves who trust God, knowing that God who avenges they know that the God who avenges will accomplish more than any victory could ever be found in an argument. In verse 10, Paul continues, he says, not pilfering. This is defined as holding back for oneself, right? This is, this is not, we should not lie and take what is not ours. This is... Um, this is uh, illustrated by Ananias and Sapphira, who dropped dead for lying to God. They stole what did not belong 
to them as those who gave, who said they gave everything to God. I think this applies in the workplace, right? We should not steal the pens. We should not steal the paper. We should not take the paper clips. We shouldn't even use their printers for our own selfish needs. That's petty. But God cares about the petty. God cares about the little things. So don't do it. Show all good faith. So this term, show all good faith, he applies this to slaves. They should have the utmost trust of their masters. This is like Joseph. He started as a slave. He was sold into slavery by his brothers abusively, and he was dragged along, thrown in prison, but by the grace of God, he became second in command to the Pharaoh of Egypt. That is all good faith, to be a slave, but to be trusted. We lived, in a, we lived in Dallas for a good season of our life, and one of the greatest blessings probably of being there as I reflect back was the fact that I got to do community group with a few black brothers in Christ. Um, was able to hold each other accountable, confess sin, love Jesus, share meals together, and it helped me understand a lot. I began to understand that through my black brothers in Christ that how you came to this country matters. Blacks, like any other skin color, were brought to this nation unwillingly and abusively. And without forgiveness, that generation, that, without forgiveness, that bitterness is transferred from generation to generation. To not understand that our nation's wealth, the wealth we have today, is a result of slavery, is also ignorance. A few weeks ago, I reached out to a couple of my brothers that I did life with back in Dallas, and found out that one of them was actually doing a church plant. And as we kind of discussed back and forth, um, he just kind of shared a little bit about what God was doing. And I just want to share what God's done in his heart. He wrote back and he said, God had to work deeply in me before he could work greatly through me. A.W. Tozer once said, it is doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Through years of service, suffering, and sanctification, God is performing surgery on my heart, changing my heart from stubborn deceptive and faithless to willing, truthful, and obedient. This process not only produced the greatest pain I have ever known, but also the purest joy. I believe that as a whole, our our black brothers in Christ understand suffering far better than we do. But this is the heart that we all should have, whether we are slave or whether we are free. We, we may not be indentured servants or slaves in this country, but many are still oppressed. There's still slavery in the world, yet God desires every person on this planet to find freedom in Jesus. When God's people who are oppressed or enslaved are submissive, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, and showing all good faith, as all of us should, God is greatly glorified. Is God seen through us? It's weighty, right? That is, that is a weighty list. If you take this seriously, that is, that is, that is not an easy task list. Um, but as I, as I started this sermon, there, there is a pressure relief valve, and that is the grace that comes through Jesus, right? So in verse 11, it is transitions in the text with the word for. This is Paul who is explaining and desires us to understand God's heart. 
So if you want to understand anything, it starts with grace. Grace appeared, became seen. Jesus came. He came for all people in the flesh. Jesus came for those who were older. He came for those who were younger. He came for those who were men. He came for those who were women. He came for those who were slaves. And he came for those who were free. So part of salvation is to train us. I love this section because this is, this is what grace does, right? It trains us. Paul lists five characteristics of this training that saves. If you want to know if you're being saved, or, sorry, if you, if you want to, I think there's some things that we can just rejoice in that God does through grace. And as we walk through, there's a, there's a few lists. So we're going to start with, there's two things that God does when grace is at work in our lives. And the first is to hate ungodliness, and the second is to hate worldly passions. God's grace should help you be self-controlled, upright, and godly. So in verse 12, these are the first two things that we're told to hate. We're told to hate ungodliness. These are the actions that are hollow, they're based upon a twisted understanding of who God is. It's, it's what we see in a culture that teaches and allows for and supports mothers who have and will kill children. Right? This is a twisted deception that allows mothers to do the exact opposite of what God describes motherhood to be. Right? That is ungodliness. It twists what God has taught. It's also obvious in homosexuality. This doctrine twists what God has said. It distorts and manipulates God's love into what is an abuse of his image. It is these things that we should hate. Not the people, not the people by any means, not those who have been caught up in these twisted deceptions, but we should hate ungodliness. Worldly passions Right? This is in parallel to ungodliness. We are to hate worldly passions. These are the temporal things, the temporal lusts, the things that if we do them, they entertain us for a moment, sometimes 30 seconds, sometimes an hour, sometimes weeks, maybe, maybe, maybe a year, but most of the time those, those are fleeting things. And these are worldly passions, right? So it's, it's the technology stuff that consumes us of having the latest, greatest phone or Something else, always looking for the next fix, whether it's the lust for sex, whether it's the next adulterous image because the last one wasn't enough, whether it's the drink, the intoxication that just wasn't enough. The next day we need more. These are the worldly passions that deceive and twist God's love and we should hate them. The last three describes what grace is doing as well. This is self-controlled. So if you haven't noticed, self-control is a theme in this text. And here, um, 
it's the same thing, right? Capturing our thoughts is so vital to the health of the church that Paul says it over and over again. Watch your thoughts be self-controlled. Grace helps us be self-controlled. So we're supposed to be upright as well. This is about character. As I thought about character, I thought about Job, who was described as being blameless, who was falsely accused by his friends. But at the end of the book, what's really cool is it says that his friends showed him sympathy and comfort him for the evil that all the Lord had brought upon him. Because of great hardship and because Job was a man of character, people loved being around him. People longed to be around Job. This is what grace does. It creates people who are upright. Godliness. Do we honor God by keeping his law? To be godly is defined by keeping his law. And Jesus makes it relatively simple. So whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also for them. For this is the law and the prophets. A godly life is a humble life that submits to God's law. This is what grace does. It makes people godly. The cool thing is all of these are supposed to occur now. In the text, you'll see that it says in the present age. These are all things that happen now. We don't have to wait for these. God is doing these actively now. And in verse 13, Paul pleads for us. He pleads for us to wait. So part of training, part of God saving us, part of God working by grace in our lives is that we wait. We are waiting for the day, right? So if you take any sport, if you've ever played sports, you train hard. You train and you train and you train some more until you're ready for that day because you want to do well. You want to win. And I gave Ryan Farr a hard time this morning. Unless you're part of the church softball team, then we don't train. We just show up. But that's, that's a whole nother issue. But this is, this is serious, right? Like we train hard. We train hard hard. And so we wait, right? We wait with great expectation. And my kids, I don't know about your kids, but they love Christmas. So last, last month, I don't think they've done it this month, but they, they've been counting down the days till Christmas, right? They just, they just can't wait for that. And that's, that's, that's celebrating when Jesus came as a baby. But like, do we wait? Are we waiting when Jesus comes back in full force and full, full glory as the king? Right? That, that should be, as it says in the text, blessed. That should be our happiness. That should be where our joy comes from. That no matter what happens, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what we experience, that we can be happy because Jesus is coming back. This is temporal. These are fleeting circumstances. They last only for a time. They are momentary. And so there is nothing, right? There is nothing, not death, not life, not angels, not demons, not past, not present, not future, not depression, not elation, nor anything that's in creation that we can touch, taste, or smell that can stop God from loving us, that can stop God from working his grace in our lives to be a people we ought to be. So Jesus saved us by his death. He offered the only acceptable, acceptable sacrifice for sin. 
So in verse 14, Paul describes, he has two characteristics. He has one that's redeemed, and he has one that is purified. This is what Jesus has done. So when he redeemed us, he freed us from oppression. He rescued us from oppression, right? We have the ability in Jesus to now choose life, not death. We were once in chains, but now we're free from sin. We're free from death. We're free from selfishness. He purified us. This is like when you get a cup out of the dishwasher and it's sparkly clean, right? Like it's purified, it's cleaned, it's ready to be used, right? He purified us, he's ready to use us. And that way every time you clean the dishwasher or you pull things out of the dishwasher, just remember like God wants to use you, he wants you to be clean. And we are beautifully clean for God's purposes. Um, we, picked, we picked just as a, as, a, as a title for the series we called Pure Church. And we wrestled through it. Um, and I, I just, as I said earlier, Mike, Mike kind of came up with the idea. But it's in 115, it's in 27, it's in 214. And we felt like it just captured the idea of what God wants. He wants to have people who are useful, how we ought to live, which is to glorify him. So my plant now has new soil. I think it's getting back to healthy. But we have a gardener who cares way more about us than I care about my plant, right? Jesus is not going to give up on his church. Jesus will not give up on us, right? But I, I know we might feel the weight. I hope we feel the weight of what God's calling us to, but I hope at the same time we also know that there's a God who beckons all those who are weary and heavy burdened to find rest in him. So with that, let us close and we'll have the music team come up here. Lord, we just, uh, God, we just thank you, God, that you are a God of grace, that even 2,000 years since you showed up as a baby, God, you're still making disciples. God, you still have a heart for the church, you still have a plan, and you're going to come back. Lord, and so we just, uh, God, we just look forward to your second appearing. God, thank you for working through me as a, as a flawed person. God, for your grace. Um, Lord, I just pray that we'd be encouraged to be the people we ought to be. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.